This is Chapter Thirty of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter Thirty. Harris climbs mountains for me. An hour's sail brought us to Lucerne again. I judged it best to go to bed and rest several days, for I knew that the man who undertakes to make the tour of Europe on foot must take care of himself. Thinking over my plans, as mapped out, I perceived that they did not take in the Furka Pass, the Rhone Glacier, the Finsteraarhorn, the Wetterhorn, etc. I immediately examined the guide-book to see if these were important, and found they were. In fact, a pedestrian tour of Europe could not be complete without them. Of course, that decided me at once to see them, for I never allow myself to do things by halves, or in a slurring, slipshod way. I called in my agent, and instructed him to go without delay and make a careful examination of these noted places on foot, and bring me back a written report of the result for insertion in my book. I instructed him to go to Hospenthal as quickly as possible, and make his grand start from there, to extend his foot expedition as far as the Giesbach Fall, and return to me from thence by diligence or mule. I told him to take the courier with him. He objected to the courier, and with some show of reason, since he was about to venture upon new and untried ground. But I thought he might as well learn how to take care of the courier now as later, therefore I enforced my point. I said that the trouble, delay, and inconvenience of traveling with a courier were balanced by the deep respect which a courier's presence commands, and I must insist that as much style be thrown into my journeys as possible so the two assumed complete mountaineering costumes and departed a week later they returned pretty well used up and my agent handed me the following official report of a visit to the furka region by h harris agent about seven o'clock in the morning with perfectly fine weather we started from hospenthal and arrived at the maison on the furka in a little under quatre hours the want of variety in the scenery from Hospenthal made the Kakapunika wearisome. But let none be discouraged. No one can fail to be completely recompensé for his fatigue when he sees, for the first time, the monarch of the Oberland, the tremendous Finsteraarhorn. A moment before all was dullness, but a pas further has placed us on the summit of the Furka, and exactly in front of us at a hopau of only fifteen miles this magnificent mountain lifts its snow-wreathed precipices into the deep blue sky the inferior mountains on each side of the pass form a sort of frame for the picture of their dread lord and close in the view so completely that no other prominent feature in the oberland is visible from this bong-a-bong nothing withdraws the attention from the solitary grandeur of the finsteraarhorn and the dependent spurs which form the abutments of the central peak with the addition of some others who were also bound for the grimsel we formed a large exloge as we descended the steg which winds round the shoulder of a mountain toward the rhone glacier we soon left the path and took to the ice and after wandering amongst the crevices un peu to admire the wonders of these deep blue caverns and hear the rushing of waters through their subglacial channels we struck out a course towards l'autre cote 
and crossed the glacier successfully, a little above the cave from which the infant Rhone takes its first bound from under the grand precipice of ice. Half a mile below this we began to climb the flowery side of the Mainwand. One of our party started before the rest, but the Hitze was so great that we found him quite exhausted, and lying at full length in the shade of a large gestein. We sat down with him for a time, for all felt the heat exceedingly in the climb up this very steep balwoggily, and then we set out again together, and arrived at last near the dead man's lake at the foot of the Seedlehorn. This lonely spot, once used for an extempore burying place, after a sanguinary battue between the French and the Austrians, is the perfection of desolation. There is nothing in sight to mark the hand of man except the line of weather-beaten whitened posts, set up to indicate the direction of the path in the Audawak of winter. Near this point the footpath joins the wider track, which connects the Grimsel with the head of the Rhone Schnaup. This has been carefully constructed, and leads with a tortuous course among and over Les Pierres, down to the bank of the gloomy little Schwashwash, which almost washes against the walls of the Grimsel Hospice. We arrived a little before four o'clock at the end of our day's journey, hot enough to justify the step, taking by most of the partie, of plunging into the crystal water of the snow-fed lake. The next afternoon we started for a walk up the Unterar glacier, with the intention of, at all events, getting as far as the Huette, which is used as a sleeping-place by most of those who cross the Stralek Pass to Grindelwald. We got over the tedious collection of stones and debris which covers the pied of the glacier, and had walked nearly three hours from the Grimsel, when, just as we were thinking of crossing over to the right, to climb the cliffs at the foot of the hut, the clouds, which had for some time assumed a threatening appearance, suddenly dropped, and a huge mass of them, driving toward us from the Finsterarhorn, poured down a deluge of habulong and hail. Fortunately, we were not far from a very large glacier-table. It was a huge rock balanced on a pedestal of ice, high enough to admit of our all creeping under it for Gaukarak. A stream of Pakitipak had furrowed a course for itself in the ice at its base, and we were obliged to stand with one fuss on each side of this, and endeavor to keep ourselves show by cutting steps in the steep bank of the pedestal, so as to get a higher place for standing on, as the Wasser rose rapidly in its trench. A very cold accompanied the storm, and made our position far from pleasant and presently came a flash of blitzen, apparently in the middle of our little party, with an instantaneous clap of yoki, sounding like a large gun fired close to our ears. The effect was startling, but in a few seconds our attention was fixed by the roaring echoes of the thunder against the tremendous mountains which completely surrounded us. This was followed by many more bursts, None of Welche, however, was so dangerously near, and after waiting a long dimmy hour in our icy prison, we sallied out to talk through a habulung, which, though not so heavy as before, was quite enough to give us a thorough soaking before our arrival at the hospice. The Grimsel is certainement a wonderful place, situated at the bottom of a sort of huge crater, 
the sides of which are utterly savage gebirge, composed of barren rocks, which cannot even support a single pine arbre, and afford only scanty food for a herd of gvalglalp. It looks as if it must be completely begraben in the winter snows. Enormous avalanches fall against it every spring, sometimes covering everything to the depth of thirty or forty feet, and in spite of walls four feet thick and furnished with outside shutters, the two men who stay here when the voyageurs are snugly quartered in their distant homes can tell you that the snow sometimes shakes the house to its foundations. Next morning the hogglebumgalop still continued bad but we made up our minds to go on and make the best of it. Half an hour after we started, the regen thickened unpleasantly, and we attempted to get shelter under a projecting rock, but being far too nas already to make standing at all agreable, we pushed on for the handbeck, consoling ourselves with the reflection that, from the furious rushing of the river Ar at our side, we should at all events see the celestial wasserfall in grande perfection. Nor were we naprzoket in our expectation. The water was roaring down its leap of two hundred and fifty feet in a most magnificent frenzy, while the trees which cling to its rocky sides swayed to and fro in the violence of the hurricane which it brought down with it. Even the stream, which falls into the main cascade at right angles, and toutefois forms a beautiful feature in the scene, was now swollen into a raging torrent, and the violence of this meeting of the waters, about fifty feet below the frail bridge where we stood, was fearfully grand. While we were looking at it, glücklicherweise, a gleam of sunshine came out, and instantly a beautiful rainbow was formed by the spray, and hung in mid-air, suspended over the awful gorge. On going into the chalet above the fall, we were informed that a brücke had broken down near Gutanen, and that it would be impossible to proceed for some time. Accordingly, we were kept in our drenched condition for ein Stunde, when some voyageur arrived from Miringen, and told us that there had been a trifling accident, aber that we could now cross. On arriving at the spot I was much inclined to suspect that the whole story was a ruse to make us slauk, and drink the more at the Handeck Inn, for only a few planks had been carried away, and though there might perhaps have been some difficulty with mules, the gap was certainly not larger than a mulksk might cross with a very slight leap. Near Gutanen the Hobelong happily ceased, and we had time to walk ourselves tolerably dry before arriving at Reichenbach. Woe, we enjoyed a good diner at the Hotel des Alpes. Next morning we walked to the Rosenlaui, the beau ideal of Swiss scenery, where we spent the middle of the day in an excursion to the glacier. This was more beautiful than words can describe for in the constant progress of the ice it has changed the form of its extremity and formed a vast cavern as blue as the sky above and rippled like a frozen ocean a few steps cut in the whoop jamborihu enabled us to walk completely under this and feast our eyes upon one of the loveliest objects in creation the glacier was all around divided by numberless fissures of the same exquisite color and the finest wood erdbeeren were growing in abundance but a few yards from the ice. The inn stands in a charmant spot, close to the Côté de la Rivière, 
which lower down forms the reichenbach fall and embosomed in the richest of pine woods while the fine form of the wellhorn looking down upon it completes the enchanting bopple in the afternoon we walked over the great scheidek and grindelwald stopping to pay a visit to the upper glacier by the way but we were again overtaken by bad hogglebumgalup and arrived at the hotel in a soch a state that the landlord's wardrobe was in great request the clouds by this time seemed to have done their worst for a lovely day succeeded which we determined to devote to an ascent of the Fallhorn. we left grindelwald just as a thunderstorm was dying away and we hoped to find guten wetter up above but the rain which had nearly ceased began again and we were struck by the rapidly increasing froid as we ascended two-thirds of the way up were completed when the rain was exchanged for gnilik with which the boden was thickly covered and before we arrived at the top the gnilik and mist became so thick that we could not see one another at more than twenty poopoo distance and it became difficult to pick our way over the rough and thickly covered ground shivering with cold we turned into bed with a double allowance of clothes and slept comfortably while the wind howled autour de la maison when i awoke the wall and the window looked equally dark but in another hour i found i could just see the form of the latter so i jumped out of bed and forced it open though with great difficulty from the frost and the quantities of gnilic heaped up against it a row of huge icicles hung down from the edge of the roof and anything more wintry than the whole anblick could not well be imagined but the sudden appearance of the great mountains in front was so startling that i felt no inclination to move toward bed again the snow which had collected upon la fenetre had increased the finsternis odor der dunkelheit so that when i looked out i was surprised to find that the daylight was considerable and that the balraguma would evidently rise before long only the brightest of les étoiles were still shining the sky was cloudless overhead though small curling mists lay thousands of feet below us in the valleys wreathed around the feet of the mountains and adding to the splendor of their lofty summits we were soon dressed and out of the house watching the gradual approach of dawn thoroughly absorbed in the first near view of the oberland giants which broke upon us unexpectedly after the intense obscurity of the evening before cried someone as that grand summit gleamed with the first rose of dawn and in a few moments the double crest of the schreckhorn followed its example peak after peak seemed warmed with life the jungfrau blushed even more beautifully than her neighbors and soon from the wetterhorn in the east to the weilstrubel in the west a long row of fires glowed upon mighty altars truly worthy of the gods the vogel was very severe our sleeping-place could hardly be distingué from the snow around it which had fallen to a depth of flirk during the past evening and we heartily enjoyed a rough scramble en bas to the giesbach falls where we soon found a warm climate at noon the day before grindelwald the thermometer could not have stood at less than one hundred degrees fahrenheit in the sun and in the evening judging from the icicles formed and the state of the windows there must have been at least twelve dingblatter of frost thus giving a change of eighty degrees during a few hours 
I said, You have done well, Harris. This report is concise, compact, well expressed. The language is crisp, the descriptions are vivid, and not needlessly elaborated. Your report goes straight to the point, attends strictly to business, and doesn't fool around. It is, in many ways, an excellent document. But it has a fault. It is too learned. It is much too learned. What is dingblatter? Dingblatter is a Fiji word meaning degrees. You knew the English of it, then? Oh, yes. What is gnilic? That is the Eskimo term for snow. So you knew the English for that, too? Oh, why, certainly. What does Moonglix stand for? That is Zulu for pedestrian. While the form of the wellhorn looking down upon it completes the enchanting bopple, what is bopple? Picture. It's Choctaw. What is schnaup? Valley. That is Choctaw also. What is Balwoggly? That is Chinese for hill. Cacaponica? Ascent. Choctaw. Uh, but we were again overtaken by bad Hogglebumgalop. What does Hogglebumgalop mean? Uh, that is Chinese for weather. Is Hogglebumgalop better than the English word? Is it any more descriptive? No, it means just the same. And uh, Dingblatter and Knilip and Bopple and Schnaup, are they better than the English words? No, they mean just what the English ones do. Then why do you use them? Why have you used all this Chinese and Choctaw and Zuli rubbish? Because I didn't know any French but two or three words, and I didn't know any Latin or Greek at all. Well, that is nothing. Why should you want to use foreign words anyhow? They adorn my page. They all do it. Who is all? Everybody. Everybody that writes elegantly. Anybody has a right to that wants to. I think you are mistaken. I then proceeded in the following scathing manner. When really learned men write books for other learned men to read, they are justified in using as many learned words as they please. Their audience will understand them. But a man who writes a book for the general public to read is not justified in disfiguring his pages with untranslated foreign expressions. It is an insolence toward the majority of the purchasers, for it is a very frank and impudent way of saying, Get the translation made yourself if you want them. This book is not written for the ignorant classes. There are men who know a foreign language so well and have used it so long in their daily life that they seem to discharge whole volleys of it into their English writings unconsciously, and so they omit to translate as much as half the time. That is a great cruelty to nine out of ten of the man's readers. What is the excuse for this? The writer would say he only uses the foreign language where the delicacy of his point cannot be conveyed in English. Very well. Then he writes his best things for the tenth man, and he ought to warn the nine others not to buy his book. However, the excuse he offers is at least an excuse, but there is another set of men who are like you. They know a word here and there of a foreign language, 
or a few beggarly little three-word phrases filched from the back of the dictionary, and these are continually peppering into their literature with a pretense of knowing that language. What excuse can they offer? The foreign words and phrases which they use have their exact equivalents in a nobler language, English, yet they think they adorn their page when they say Strasse for street and Bahnhof for railway station and so on, flaunting these fluttering rags of poverty in the reader's face and imagining he will be ass enough to take them for the sign of untold riches held in reserve. I will let your learning remain in your report. You have as much right, I suppose, to adorn your page with Zulu and Chinese and Choctaw rubbish as others of your sort have to adorn theirs with insolent odds and ends smooched from half a dozen learned tongues whose ab abs they don't even know. When the musing spider steps upon the red-hot shovel, he first exhibits a wild surprise, then he shrivels up. Similar was the effect of these blistering words upon the tranquil and unsuspecting agent. I can be dreadfully rough on a person when the mood takes me. End of chapter 30